0: What you are about to see is an historical documentary of the ongoing struggle by the people of Philistine to protect the holy lands of Christianity, Judaism and Islam from its enemies. After the fall of the Ottoman Empire, Philistine was populated with families that had farmed this land for more than 2,000 years. France and Great Britain secretly agreed to partition most of the Arab provinces of the Ottoman Empire between them and obtain mandates from the League of Nations. The camera goes behind the walls to discover a society like the societies of Cairo, Damascus, Beirut, or the agricultural areas of the southeastern United States. At the turn of the 20th century, life in Philistines centered around the seasonal crops. The people earned their living from the resources of the land, similar to tenant farmers in the United States. Their homeland was their village. But soon, all this would change. Theodor Herzl was the first Zionist. Herzl was born in Budapest, and grew up in Vienna, where he wrote Der Judenstaat, the Jewish state. He advocated British-backed colonization in Argentina or Philistine. The Zionists finally decided on Philistine. Their decision was based on biblical information that there had been periods of Hebrew rule in Canaan, an Old Testament name for Philistine. The Arabs considered this claim to be without substance. Traditionally, the population of Philistine included religious Muslims, Arab Jews, or Judeans, as they were once known as, and Arab Armenian Christians, who had peacefully lived in these holy lands for thousands of years before the first wave of European Jews arrived. The Judeans, or religious Jews, had never attempted to claim these holy lands as a God-given birthright. History indicates that for more than a thousand years during Islamic rule, the Jews, Christians, and Muslims who lived there were granted sovereignty and protection. In 1897, Herzl convened the first Zionist Congress and proclaimed the right of the Zionists to a homeland in Philistine. Herzl predicted that in 50 years a Zionist state would be established in Philistine Herzl's plan began with saving money for the purpose of buying land in Philistine the American and European Jews saved their money in banks and in tin boxes beginning in 1909 vast tracts of land were bought the Zionists paid the price quoted without haggling or bargaining the Arabs didn't know they were being invaded until the Zionists had purchased sufficient lands and came to claim their land with deeds in hand. Herzl's plan also required that the Zionists get a benefactor country to execute their invasion. For centuries Britain had been the largest and most ruthless colonial ruler on earth. They had built a vast empire by utilizing the most savage tactics to subjugate and control the masses of people. It was easy for the Zionists to convince the covetous British on historical, economic, and religious grounds that a Zionist state was both lucrative and viable. However, Herzl's plan could not work as long as the Ottoman Empire was strong. The Ottomans had ruled this area for 400 years from their capital in Constantinople, and for 400 years the British had coveted these lands. To weaken the Sultan's rule, the British government sent a spy, T.E. Lawrence, or Lawrence of Arabia, as he was known. Lawrence was a British officer attached to the intelligence section of the British Army in Egypt. In 1911, although not an archaeologist, he joined the British museum archaeological expedition. Lawrence remained in the Middle East learning Arabic. In 1916, he joined the Arab forces under Faisal al-Hussein, the sheriff of Mecca. Because of his military training, Lawrence quickly became a military leader. In 1916, he convinced the Arabs that the British government would guarantee their independence if they revolted against the Turks. Although the revolt of the Arabs contributed to the fall of the Ottoman Empire, it didn't result in their independence. During the First World War, British policy became committed to the idea of establishing a Jewish home in Palestine. After discussions in the British cabinet and consultations with Zionist leaders, the decision was made known in the form of a letter by Arthur James Lord Balfour to Lord Rothschild. The letter represents the first political recognition of Zionist aims by a major world power. The re- letter says Foreign Office November 2nd 1917 Dear Lord Rothschild, I have much pleasure in conveying to you on behalf of His Majesty's government the following declaration of sympathy with Jewish Zionist aspirations, which has been submitted to and approved by the cabinet. His Majesty's government views with favor the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people, and will use their best endeavors to facilitate the achievement of this object. It being clearly understood that nothing shall be done which may prejudice the civil and religious rights of existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine or the rights and political status enjoyed by Jews in any other country. I should be grateful if you would bring this declaration to the knowledge of the Zionist Federation. Yours sincerely, Arthur James Balfour. This letter announced that His Royal Highness looked with a sympathetic eye on building a national homeland for Jews in Philistine. However, this was clearly to be done in a way that would not prejudice the civil and religious rights of its non-Jewish communities. David Ben-Gurion, the first Prime Minister of the Zionist State of Israel, while living in New York, heard about the Balfour Declaration. He went to Philistine and volunteered for the British Army. Radical Zionist Ziv Jabotinsky was a Russian Jew, an orator, and an officer in the British Army. He later became a leader of the Zionist right right wing. He was the spiritual father of the Zionist movement. Jabotinsky wrote that the sole way for Jews to deal with Arabs was through total avoidance of all attempts to arrive at a settlement. Jabotinsky termed this the iron wall approach. It has been reported that today, a picture of Jabotinsky is on Prime Minister Arya Sharon's desk. In 1919, the first Philistinian conference was held, and the first political group was formed. Winston Churchill was the British Minister of Colonies in 1922. Churchill didn't care about the rights or demands of the Arabs. His only concern was to consolidate England's rule over her military conquest and to bolster his failing political career. Churchill petitioned and solidified the borders between the British and French colonies. Syria and Lebanon were given to France, while Iraq was also placed under the British mandate. The Arabian Peninsula was given to al-Sharif Faisal ibn al Hussein, a king under the protection of the British. A special state was carved out for his oldest son, which became known as Jordan. In 1923, the fledgling League of Nations approved the British Mandate over Philistine. From 1923 to 1928, the Zionists advertised in the West and continued collecting money to build a homeland. Jewish immigration increased, and over 100,000 Russian and Polish immigrants migrated to the Zionist settlements. However, in 1929, on the 12th anniversary of the Balfour Declaration, due to the rising Jewish immigration levels, the Arabs protested with a general strike. The strike lasted for six months, with daily confrontations with the British forces. A state of emergency existed. The British began arresting Christian and Muslim Philistinians suspected of being involved. In spite of this, the strike escalated and increased in intensity. There were also confrontations between the Philistinians and the settlers. The year Hitler came to power, the number of immigrants was 35,000. The next year, it became 45,000. And by 1935, it was a record 65,000. In 1936, to protest the British occupation and support of the increasing immigration and settlement building, the Philistinians began what is called the Arab Uprising, or Intifada. This revolt lasted for two years. The real story of what was happening was kept away from the people of Britain. In London, the BBC misled the British people into believing that the large expenditures for reinforcements were to control criminals and outlaws, not revolutionaries and freedom fighters.
1: More British troops have landed at Haifa for the delicate job of stamping out the trouble in Palestine. You might call them the Kid Glove Army. They have to suppress assassins and bandits with the use of as little force as possible.
0: With the help of the British Army, Zionist settlers, both men and women, were organized into military units they received weapons and military training however this training was not for defensive but for offensive actions these armed settlers became a semi-military occupation force during those years Ben-Gurion was the leader of the Zionist executive power which served as the Israeli government this new government backed by trained military occupiers cemented the foundation of the future Zionist state The Arabs were losing their power, land, and authority in their own country, and the whole world blamed them for their victimization. Jabotinsky's supporters established an undercover terrorist network known as the Irgun. They threw hand grenades into Christian and Muslim civilian areas to create confusion and terror. In 1937, a British government study, the Peel Report, concluded that Jews and Arabs could not live peacefully together in one state and suggested that Britain partition Philistine into two states, one Jewish, one Arab, with Jerusalem as a separate international city. In 1938, the British launched a vicious attack against the Intifada. The British Air Force bombed civilian villages while cannons pounded their homes. Foot soldiers followed on search-and-destroy missions. British soldiers indiscriminately broke down the doors of Christian and Muslim households. They arrested those suspected of being the leaders of the revolution and hung them and their followers. They dynamited the houses of the Christian and Muslim civilians as they crushed this first major revolution. In 1939, a peace conference was held in London, but the Palestinians were not allowed to send a representative. The British adopted what was known as the Palestine Statement of Policy. Article 3 of that policy stated, that after a period of five years no further immigration will be permitted unless the Arabs of Palestine acquiesce in it. The Zionists were furious at this decision. They called their British benefactors traitors to their cause and described their former friends as enemies. They commenced planning the end of the British mandate. In the meantime, David Ben-Gurion organized a massive exodus from Europe during which 17,000 Jews left. Ships full of illegal immigrants broke the British blockades on a daily basis. The King David Hotel massacre of July 22, 1946 marked the end of the British mandate. The King David Hotel in Jerusalem served as the headquarters of the British army and the secretariat of the Philistinian government. Yitzhak Ben Ami, a Jew who spent 30 years in exile for investigating the crimes of the leaders of the internal Zionist movement, reported that the explosion, which resulted in the deaths of 92 Brightons, Arabs and Jews, and in the wounding of 58 others, was not an act of Zionist extremists. It was premeditated murder, conducted by the Ergun in agreement with the Jewish Agency, the highest Zionist authority in Philistine, and its head, David Ben-Gurion. The Jewish Agency's motive was to destroy all evidence the British had gathered proving that the terrorist crime waves in Philistine were not merely the actions of fringe groups such as the Ergun, but were committed under the direction of the highest political body of the Zionist establishment itself. In addition, the British had been accused of being traitors and anti-Semites because they upheld the 1939 Palestine policy statement limiting Jewish migration from Europe. In April 1947, under strong American and Zionist pressure, the newly formed UN Security Council approved Resolution 181, dividing Philistine and establishing both a Zionist and Philistinian state. The Zionists were arbitrarily given 56% of the land and the Arabs 44%. Jerusalem remained a neutral zone due to the holy places of the three revealed religions contained there. The Arabs opposed this decision for four reasons. First, 66% of the population was Arab, and the Zionists held only 6% of the land which they had bought. Second, Philistinians questioned the legality of Resolution 181 since the British mandate specified that the opinions of the inhabitants must be taken into account in any decisions. Since two-thirds of the people in Philistine were Arabs, they maintained that the creation of a Zionist state against the will of the Arab majority could not be legal. Three, neighboring independent Arab states feared that Israel would be an agent of powerful Western nations that would use it to dominate the region. 4. Muslims and many Christians, the Catholic Church most prominently, felt that the religious significance of Philistine and Jerusalem to Judaism, Christianity, and Islam should be respected. The declaration of a Jewish state in May 1948 sparked four wars and many massacres of Arabs. The war of 1948 lasted about three months. Thousands died and when the dust settled a Zionist state was in place but the Philistinian Arab state had been stillborn. Three things happened to the Philistinian state. First, during the fighting Israel captured much of the territory assigned to the Arab state by the UN. Today this illegally acquired land is considered part of Israel by most of the world community. Second, Jordan took control of that section of the Arab state called the West Bank. Third, a small part of Philistinian territory, the Gaza Strip, was held by Egypt. Egypt never annexed Gaza. Israel captured it in the 1967 war. Today, it is also considered to be part of the occupied territories. For some unexplained reason, the UN recognized the Zionist state as a country, even though the Zionists did not have any of the necessary factors one would normally associate with a real country. By accepting maps and demographic information provided by the Zionists, the UN failed to verify ownership of the land. They didn't mandate that monitors monitor the petition in accordance with the UN Charter. In addition, The following points defy reason. First, the people of the State of Israel did not represent one people, culture, language, or national identity as is usual with countrymen. Second, their only commonality was that they professed to be adherents to Judaism, a religion. Third, the land they claimed as their national homeland belonged to the Philistinian people. At the beginning of the 20th century, the Jews had purchased approximately 1% of the Philistinian lands, and by 1948, they had 6%. Once they were accepted by the UN, they were illegally given an additional 50% of the land. Once in power, they commenced to pass laws permitting them to seize the lands of the Philistinians without compensation. Fourth, a democratic government of any country, if it's a true democracy, ought to represent the people of that country. However, from the very beginning, this Zionist government has committed genocide against the Arab, Christian, and Muslim populations. They have terrorized anyone who speaks out in disagreement with them. Fifth, Israel is the only example in history of a country founded by a resolution of the UN or any world body allegedly dedicated to peace. Sixth, the Zionists declared in their declaration establishing the State of Israel That the state of israel is prepared to cooperate with the agencies and representatives of the united nations in implementing the resolution of the general assembly of november 29 1947 and will take steps to bring about the economic union of the whole of israel however israel does not agree geographically or demographically with the country suggested in that un resolution seventh Israel is also in violation of subsequent U.N. resolutions such as 242, 338, and 425 that were attempts to contain and hold Israel to its initial boundaries. In addition to violating its oath to adhere to the U.N. resolution and to safeguard the rights of the Philistinian people, it is also in violation of international law and countless agreements, ceasefires, treaties, or accords they have signed to stop the terror and illegal confiscation of the Philistinian lands. A UN General Assembly Committee was formed which wrote in its minutes that this partitioning was contrary to the principles of the UN Charter. The massacre of Deir Yassin marked the beginning of a new Zionist strategy to replace the Philistinian people. In 1948, the Urgun and the Lehi right-wing guerrilla groups, with the acquiescence of the Haganah, the Jewish defense organization, decided to capture the village of Der Yassin in a combined operation. And with the help of a small unit of the Palma, the Haganah's elite striking force, they accomplished their objective. As soon as the Palma had withdrawn, the guerrillas proceeded to massacre about 110 of the villagers, mostly old men, women and children. Prime Minister David Ben-Gurion sent an apology to King Abdullah of Jordan, and Martin Buber called it a black stain on the honor of the Jewish nation. Nevertheless, the village was evacuated. Its cemetery bulldozed and its site appropriated to provide a mental home and an orthodox Jewish settlement. In 1951, the Israelis established a terrorist network inside Egypt with the capability of attacking civilian and military targets. In 1954, as pressure mounted for the British and French to turn over the Suez Canal to the Egyptians, the network launched a series of attacks on American installations designed to discredit the Egyptian government. Their targets included the United States Information Service libraries in Cairo and Alexandria. A failed attack in Alexandria led to the uncovering and disbanding of the operation, codenamed Susanna. The question quickly became, who authorized the attacks on U.S. installations? Despite denying that the order was his, Defense Minister Pincus Levan was forced to resign. The media called it the Levan Affair. On October 29, 1956, the same day Israel launched its assault on Egypt, Israeli frontier guards at 4 p.m. started what they called a tour of the triangle villages. They told the mukhtars or aldermen of those villages that the curfew from that day onwards was to start at 5 p.m. instead of the usual 6 p.m. The aldermen protested that there were about 400 villages working outside the village of Kafir Qasim and there was not enough time to inform them of the new times. An officer assured him that they would be taken care of. The officers positioned themselves at the village entrance. At about 4.55 p.m., unaware of the ambush awaiting them, the farmers started flocking in after a hard day of work. The Israeli soldiers stepped out of their military trucks and ordered the villagers to line up. Then the officer in charge screamed, reap them, and the soldiers riddled the bodies of the Philistinian villagers with bullets. With the massacre practically over, the soldiers moved around, finishing off whoever still had a pulse. The Israeli government took great pains to hide the truth of what happened. The press was also part of the cover-up. More absurd than the trial of the soldiers was their light prison sentences. On June 5, 1967, Israel launched a massive surprise air assault against Egypt and destroyed Arab air capability. Within three days, Israel, with air superiority protecting its ground forces, controlled the Sinai Peninsula and then attacked Jordan, capturing Jerusalem. On the Syrian border, the Zionists surprised the Syrians with an attack on the strategic Golan Heights. These areas are also known as the occupied territories. During 1973, the Arab states, believing that their complaints against Israel were going unheeded by the UN and the world, quietly prepared for war. The Arab oil producing countries unified with the Philistinians by cutting off all supplies to America. This was an attempt to keep America from supporting Israeli aggression and criminal behavior against the Arab countries. However, Israel, with the American fleet supporting them, forced the Syrians and Egyptians back and in the last hours of the war established a military presence on the west bank of the Suez Canal. But these advances were achieved at a high cost in soldiers and equipment. Through U.S. and Soviet diplomatic pressures, as well as efforts of the United Nations, a tenuous ceasefire was implemented by October 25th.
2: The Golan is the most fertile area of Syria with abundant water and rich volcanic soil. Knaitra on the old road to Jerusalem is the regional capital and market center of 11 million acres. This was Knaitra before the Israeli occupation in 1967. The Knaitrans are celebrating the Eid or feast in the early 1960s. Francis Fuller of the Near East Baptist Mission.
3: I'm standing in the rubble of the city of Knaitra. I came here just to see for myself what happened here. Kanator really has to be seen to be believed. I realize today walking in the streets what a beautiful city this used to be with many many trees and gardens and so many of the homes were very large substantial homes. This was home to 53,000 Syrians
2: Mrs. Wadad Nassif, herself a Palestinian refugee of 1948, is one of 10 Kunaitrans who lived on under near seven years of Israeli occupation.
4: How and when was this city of Kunaitra destroyed? How did it become like it is today? Well, they started destroying bits and during the seven years, uh, little bits, and sometimes they pulled down the houses to to uh, build uh, inf- reinforcements and shelters, and then little by little, and then they sold the rest. They they pulled they threw everything out, and and they burned many things and all the furnitures and things. They used to send burn them up, and then they took what they took and they left what they left. And little by little, ha- the whole town was emptied. And then when they decided to leave, then they started pulling down everything. They've got the bulldozers and they pulled down everything. They worked at it from morning till night, till so they pulled down the whole house, and there was nothing left. And if, didn't go, if the bulldozer wasn't enough, they'd blow it up. And then uh, when they really pulled down what you see now, they pulled it down in three days in three days they didn't leave anything at all at all at all
2: until the Israeli invasion Kunetra had been almost equally Christian and Muslim with six places of worship three mosques and three churches Protestant Roman Catholic and the largest Greek Orthodox
4: you are an Arab Christian. Yes. What happened to the religious uh, institutions and buildings during the war and occupation? Well they just did to the churches what they did to the rest of the houses. The Protestant church was destroyed. Was completely destroyed I mean it was they were just treated it like everything else. In words no, but in deeds yes.
1: only trace of a church, vicarage, and school, a child's exercise book.
4: Minaret, as you see, is half destroyed and the mosque itself was destroyed. They just stole everything from the church and uh, divided it of everything.
1: From the hospital roof, the Christian Cemetery,
4: so that there was a certain amount of damage to the graves. Oh yes, yeah. even a savage wouldn't do what they did to the graves here.
1: Prayers for the Shalug family. Some bodies were easily desecrated. with a heavy crowbar a burst of automatic fire since 1948 Israel has destroyed 385 in Palestine in Syria since 1967 including Kanatra at least seven Israeli spokesmen have denied charges of deliberate destruction blaming Syrian military action but facts belie the claim Peter Snow of British Independent Television made a report from the Israeli side on the 12th of May, just 17 days before they withdrew. If there is a disengagement agreement, the map around here is going to change quite a lot. This is the town of Canetra, the old Syrian capital of the Golan Heights, which the Israelis are now offering to return to the Syrians in exchange for a disengagement agreement. Well, now all the territory to the east of Canetra, over there, is the bulge captured by Israel inside Syria in October 1973 and now say the Israelis to the Syrians we'll give you back that bulge and we'll even give you back Kanatra as well clearly Kanatra stood today eighty percent of Kanatra's dwellings are pancaked flat this only happens when support walls and pillars are blown simultaneously with dynamite or are pushed or pulled by bulldozers using
2: chains. Mike Wallace was in Kanatra in 1974, filming for 60 minutes. To contemplate its devastation by the
1: Israelis, who occupied it for seven years. When they pulled out, they reduced it to rubble. It was destroyed not by shellfire fire and war, but by bulldozer and dynamite months afterward
4: when you leave it as it is then you can understand to what extent they have gone and this is here but in palestine completely they come take it away. i mean they don't leave a sign of a town or a village or anything So you want conatra to remain as a kind of monument yeah i do i do i think it would be a wonderful monument we should leave it because you see the arabs are so good natured they quickly forget the wickedness of others but they should be kept reminded of what can happen to them if they go to sleep
2: again. After the withdrawal of the Israelis at the end of May 1974 thousands of Canetrans returned to their village many on foot. Although they were able to raise the Syrian flag over Canetra all were bitterly disappointed that their houses had been destroyed. These Syrians now live with relatives around Syria or in refugee camps and tents around Damascus.
3: And the joy of the former inhabitants of Kanaitre is quickly turned to bitterness because actually they have no homes to come back to. None of these things has contributed anything to peace in the Middle East. Therefore we have to ask if these things were done by someone who wants peace in the Middle East.
2: The dots show the Israeli settlements that have been built in the Golan containing about 10,500 settlers. The largest, Kisrin, has some 3,500 inhabitants. Of more than 153,000 Syrians who lived in the Golan prior to 1967, just 16,000 live on under Israeli occupation. The Syrian village of Aintin today people are compelled to shout across the Israeli-established no-man's-land to relatives and friends down below in Majd al-Shams. The Israeli occupation in the Golan, the West Bank and Gaza is the most repressive and the longest lasting of any military occupation of modern times. An American Jew concerned and angry by Israeli activities and tactics is the American author and attorney Mark Lane.
5: I think the best way to understand Zionism is to read the words of Rabbi Meyer Kahane who was chosen by Menachem Begin to write the introduction to Begin's book, The Revolt. In his own works, Rabbi Kahani explains what Zionism and the so-called Jewish state stands for. He writes, The Jewish people stand or fall on the knowledge that we are not like all other people. We are the chosen people, a godly people, a people chosen by the Almighty to do His will. There is a chosen people, a chosen land, and a chosen state, and a chosen destiny and the conduct of the Jew and his state must be directed toward that destiny. The normal rules of nationhood and statehood do not apply to us. The normal logic of foreign policy is not ours. We have been chosen. The words had a familiar ring to me when I read them. Then I went back into history and I read the words of another author and another leader. He said the same thing, I think, in these words. We have been chosen. We must cling unflinchingly to our foreign policy aims, that is to guarantee our nation the soil and territory to which it is entitled on this earth. And this is the only action which before God and our posterity would seem to justify an investment of blood. We have been chosen by destiny. Those are the words of Adolf Hitler writing in Mein Kampf.
0: In 1982, Israel launched a massive attack to destroy all military bases of the Palestinian Liberation Organization in South Lebanon. After a ten-week siege of the Muslim sector of West Beirut, the Philistinians were forced to accept a U.S.-sponsored plan whereby the PLO refugees would evacuate Beirut and go to several Arab countries that had agreed to accept them. Israel withdrew from Lebanon but continued to maintain a Lebanese Christian police buffer zone north of its border. A result of this occupation was one of the most brutal massacres in recent history, known as the massacre of Sabra and Shatila. Thousands of unarmed and defenseless Philistinian refugees, old men, women and children, were butchered in an orgy of savage killing. Israel supplied the Christian phalangists with money, arms and equipment to fight the PLO in Lebanon. Since terror had led to the exodus of a large number of Philistinians in 1948, the motivation for another exodus of Philistinians, this time from Lebanon, was a common objective of Israeli leaders and their Phalangist allies. On the morning of September 15, 1982, the Israel Defense Forces moved into West Beirut and completely occupied it notwithstanding the protests of the Lebanese and U.S. governments. The IDF, however, did not enter the Sabra and Shatila refugee camps, but encircled and sealed them off with troops and tanks. It appears from the testimony of Rafael Aitan, Israel's chief of staff given before the Israeli Commission of Inquiry, that the decision to enter the Sabra and Shatila camps was made by him and Sharon on September 14, 1982. This was followed by meetings between those two military chiefs and the Phalangist commanders to coordinate the operation of the militiamen's entry into the camps. The decision to allow the militiamen's entry into the camps was also approved by the Israeli cabinet. On Thursday, September 16th, three units of 50 militiamen each were sent into the refugee camps at 5 p.m., They commenced an orgy of killing, which lasted until the morning of Saturday, September 18th. The following is an extract from the testimony of two American reporters who gave evidence before the same commission of inquiry. When we entered Sabra and Shatila on Saturday, September 18th, 1982, the final day of the killing, we saw bodies everywhere. We photographed victims that had been mutilated with axes and knives. Only a few of the people we photographed had been machine-gunned. Others had their heads smashed, their eyes removed, their throats cut, skin was stripped from their bodies, limbs were severed. Some people were eviscerated. The terrorists also found time to plunder Philistinian property as well as books, manuscripts, and other cultural material from the Philistinian Research Center in Beirut. On December 16, 1982, The United Nations General Assembly condemned the massacre and declared it to be an act of genocide. The attack on Beirut was a violation of many agreements agreed to by the Zionists, such as, one, it constituted a violation of the ceasefire of the Israeli-Lebanese war, and two, the agreement which governed the PLO evacuation. Three, it was a breach of Israel's word to President Reagan not to enter West Beirut after the PLO's departure. Fourth, it breached international law and constituted a war crime for which Ariel Sharon was summoned before the Israeli Commission of Inquiry and most recently, the War Crimes Tribunal in Belgium. Even though Prime Minister Menachem Begin and then Defense Minister Ariel Sharon made the decision to attack West Beirut, only Ariel Sharon was asked to resign by the Israeli Knesset, the Hebron massacre. On February 25, 1994, a Jewish American Zionist physician named Baruch Goldstein decided to materialize the dream of the typical Zionist of annihilating the Arab existence in Palestine. It was during the holy month of Ramadan when many people flocked to the Abraham Mosque in Hebron to perform their prayers that Dr. Goldstein decided to execute his plan. At dawn on February 25, 1994, Goldstein passed two Israeli army checkpoints from the northeastern gate of the mosque near the privy. The privy of the mosque is important not only because it has two Israeli army checkpoints on its nearby gate but also because it is surrounded by Israeli army posts from the east and army patrols in the west. With his AK-47 in hand, Dr. Goldstein walked at least a hundred yards into the mosque before he chose the exact location that enabled him to shoot directly at the largest number of the backs of the worshipers and also because it was supposed to have enabled him to get a fast escape or protection from the Israeli soldiers who were scattered right behind him in the northern hall. First, he threw a hand grenade among the worshipers causing casualties and confusion. He then opened fire with the AK-47 and the bloody massacre took place. President Bill Clinton never referred to the massacre as an act of terrorism, although he indiscriminately referred to similar acts by Philistinians as terrorism. President Clinton described Goldstein as a murderer, not a terrorist, although the President knew that Dr. Goldstein was a member of a terrorist group named Kakh, that is banned by our government. Our government's position at that time was calling to renew the empty slogans of the need for peace. Slogans that our government failed to be a potent partner in. The U.S. government was the only one to refuse condemning the massacre in the United Nations. It does not appear that the Hebron massacre will be the last one. Muslim and Christian Philistinians are and will remain candidates for victimization, and the cause will always be the same. The Nazi-styled occupation of the Zionists in Palestine. In 1998, in an attempt to break the power of the Lebanese Hezbollah, which means Party of God, Israeli forces undertook a military operation against South Lebanon. The Israeli forces bombed the UN shelter at Pana, which was providing refuge to approximately 500 Lebanese, most of them children, elderly, and women, who had been forced out of their homes by Israeli raids on their villages and were unable to get to Beirut. This massacre took the lives of 109 Lebanese civilians and 116 others were seriously wounded. During the attack, Israeli forces used between five and six advanced bombs designed to explode above their target in order to cause the largest possible number of casualties. International investigations confirmed that the Israeli forces had deliberately targeted the shelter.
6: From that day to on the 10th of April we started uh, counting every single Lebanese that was coming into camp. The mothers, the fathers, the children, the grandfathers, the the elderlies, those who can't walk. And uh, as you can know that this camp is made to cater only for 150 soldiers, but the numbers was increasing daily, right up to the 18th, where on the count, on the morning of the 18th of April, we had approximately 824 Lebanese. But when uh, the shelling increased around the AO, there were more, more numbers, more people moving in. So till the moment of the actual shelling of Kana, or Tech Headquarters, Fiji, Tech Headquarters, there was approximately close to 900 people here, plus the 150 soldiers here. So you put a uh, workout. There was more than 1,100 soldiers, 11 people here. Usually, before we have we for any shelling by the Israelis, we have a, a shell warning from our unifield operations. But on this particular incident, there was no shell warning given. There was no shell warning on that day.
1: and the tragic misfiring in Israel's legitimate exercise of its right to self-defense.
0: Contrary to the media images, Christians and Muslims live side by side in Bethlehem. Sister Mary, an eyewitness, wrote this report on October 20th, 2001. As I begin writing this, the muezzin calls out from the mosque that it's time for prayer. Next, the church bells will ring out to remind us Christians that God is greater than anything we can ever imagine. It seems like a normal day in the old city of Jerusalem. But things are far from normal. Helicopter gunships announced their presence above us even before 5 o'clock this morning. Ramallah, Nablus, and Janine were attacked. The Israeli occupation force targeted a Christian girl's school, killing one 11-year-old girl and wounding others. The towns south of Jerusalem in the Bethlehem area were also closed as the gunfire and bombardment commenced. Some residents could not reach their parents or children in Beit Jala, another Christian city near Bethlehem. We in the old city tried to act normal doing the things we do each friday cleaning and shopping friday is a day off from school here but this morning there were only a few children outside and those stayed on their doorsteps the neighborhood was quiet and one could hear the news being broadcast in arabic from radios and tvs in the houses news of Ariel Sharon insisting on seven days of absolute quiet while the Israeli occupation forces arrest and legally torture more people. Seven days of absolute quiet while more land confiscations are made and more homes and olive groves bulldozed. But how can this lead to any quiet? It is as though terror rules the day and proclaims itself greater than God. Sister Mary wrote on December 1st 2001 Advent 2001 begins this Sunday And although Advent and Christmas 2000 lacked all the normal preparations and celebrations in the Holy Land, we are determined that this year things will be different. Last year the Christian population was feeling the effects of and the aftermath of the bloodbath from the massacre at Al-Aqsa Mosque and pilgrims from the second millennium did not come to Bethlehem. Even those foreigners residing in Israel were refused entry into Bethlehem on Christmas Day by the Israeli occupation force. This year, the Christian population has refused to allow their occupiers to determine the celebration of the birth of Jesus. Beginning this first Sunday of Advent, December 2nd, Manger Square will come alive with preparations. Embassies from around the world have sent Christmas decorations from their countries, and expatriates have baked typical Christmas foods from their Christian cultures for a Christmas bazaar. Philistinians will have their beautiful handicrafts for sale. Choirs from the local schools and from foreign countries will fill Manger Square with music and bands will play. Only one thing can prevent us from beginning our Advent journey, the Israeli occupation force which stands at roadblocks controlling every entry point into Bethlehem. For now we pray that we can join with our Christian brothers and sisters in Bethlehem and journey with them toward the celebration of the birth of our savior on december 8 2001 sister mary wrote i am delighted to report that the advent bazaar in bethlehem that was canceled last sunday became a reality today boots from many european countries and from africa line bethlehem square on three sides leaving the eastern side open facing the basilica as people gathered, awaiting the foreigners who would be coming to staff the booths, Christian families from Bethlehem, Beit Sahur and Beit Jala milled around Nativity Square. Children were excited and an atmosphere of expectation was tangible. Finally, the foreigners made it through the Israeli checkpoints and displayed the work and food from their countries. The array was marvelous. All sold for very low prices, Since there are so few wage earners, now that travel agents, hotels, restaurants, and souvenir shops have been closed for over a year. And so many businesses were destroyed by the recent Israeli invasion. The choirs began to sing, and the music had a marvelous effect on all of us. It seemed odd, though, that the United States did not have a booth. I wondered if the bazaar was too religious, or too political, or too what? God bless those who came to work, the proceeds of the bazaar will be used to provide the children of Bethlehem with winter coats, and God bless the traumatized children of Bethlehem. May their town have the stillness that the world sings about in the Christmas carols. May the people of Bethlehem be spared another invasion by the Israeli occupation force.